Welcome, welcomen, bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy, and I would rather fling myself down a stairwell than give away information. And I'm AJ, and I've just been told the dogs have broken loose, so I'm just going to have to go and get them around the (laughs) book. If you could, if you could bring them back to the Candide (laughs) post-haste. Yes, I've got several children to round up again today as well. Good, good to know. I'm also pleased that you're using such a great code system. <laughs> no one knows. No one can guess no, what it is. No. Hello. Hello, you. Lovely. On your birthday, no less. It's my birthday. <laughs> it really is. And, you, and what a week. I know. What a week we've had to celebrate. We it. actually <laughs> met each other in person in the glorious epicenter of Leeds did we not yeah it was so nice to meet you in person and there's always that you know worry when you meet someone that you've befriended on the internet like if we don't get on in person this is going to be so (laughs) awkward but that was not the case it wasn't but I did bend your ear apologies (laughs) (laughs) we had fantastic conversation which I greatly enjoyed and the evening passed too soon yeah same same and you even met Ryan yes our podcast Bridget. <laughs> I don't know how he feels about being called that, but I think he's really pleased on the quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yes, later on in the show we'll be hearing from Ryan, who is watching Secret Army for the first time when we get his immediate reactions to every episode. So that's something to look forward to. Yes. I want to see if his confusion is any less than it was after the first episode. <laughs> just as, just before I hit record, he said, but wait, I don't know anybody's name. <laughs> Which was rather sweet. Anyway, yes. we digress. Yes. Today we are here to talk about Sergeant on the Run. We are the second episode of the first series of Secret Army that was broadcast on the 14th of September 1977 to a rapt audience in Britain. 6.3 million of them, no less. I mean, that's really great starting figures, isn't it, for a show that's just starting out? I don't know. Is it? For 1977, I think it's a bit slender. Oh, OK. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking in modern day numbers. Yeah. But then it's on a Wednesday night. It's not in a great slot. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Did BBC Two exist at this point? Or was there literally just two channels to choose from? <laughs> wow. No, BBC Two had been around for a long time. OK, OK. Yeah, it even had its own drama series as well, so it wasn't Ah, just BBC One drama, yeah. (laughs) Very good, very good. So, we need to talk about Sergeant on the Run. Can you start with a plot summary, please? Lisa is concerned about the continued presence of Flight Lieutenant Curtis, whom she still does not trust. However, a more immediate problem is the increasing numbers of evaders on Lifeline's hands. One evader is discovered and taken for questioning to German headquarters in the Avenue Louise. This troubles Albert and Lisa because they think he may reveal information about the line. Meanwhile, the evader in question, a Sergeant Walker, makes a desperate escape attempt. <laughs> do you want to do have a run at the last sentence again? I do want to do that again. <laughs> oh dear. Meanwhile, the evader in question, a Sergeant Walker, makes a desperate escape attempt. To be fair, desperate escape attempt is quite really hard, isn't it? 
<laughs> I was thinking it was the other way around, right. Meanwhile, the evader in question, as Sergeant Walker, makes a desperate attempt at escape. Ooh, what you did there? <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. I'm ready to dive in. So, Andy, I would love to hear your information, your thoughts on the writer and director of this episode because I've been lazy and I know you know it and I've not looked it up. <laughs> That's quite okay, AJ. Um, John Brayson, who is also the script editor, of course. So the guiding hand, the man at the tiller, if you will, who was who was shaping the series, um, very little got past John Brayson on any script um, throughout the, the series run. I think we covered him in enough detail last time, so I think we'll move straight on to Victor's Retellis, if we may. We may. <laughs> so Victor's mad bastard Retellis, as he's known <laughs> in some quarters, I actually saw that on a forum once and I've always remembered that. Um, and that was said by a former colleague of his at the BBC, so I think his reputation was quite strong. Um, Victor's was a very flamboyant director. Mm -hmm. I think he's still with us, just about. And he made his mark on many a series. His time with um, his relationship with Gerard Glaister, who produced Secret Army, goes all the way back to This Man Craig, which was a series in the 60s. But Victor's Retellis, of course, we all know... It's the all-important stand-in for Ian Chesterton in The Crusade um, Doctor Who story, where he doubled for him, um, his arm doubled for Ian's arm, and ants crawled all over it. And he was also one of the production assistants on the epic, I don't think it's epic, <gasps> I can't believe I just said that, The Daleks Master Plan, <gasps> in which his memories of that story were um have been crucial to our understanding of of that era of the show because there's so little on series three of Doctor Who. But this is not a Doctor Who podcast, AJ. Stop making me talk about AJ. Stop, stop <laughs> making me talk. Stop, what I mean to say, stop making me talk about Doctor Who. Come I was on. just going to chime in and say, for the few listeners out there who are not Doctor Who fans, yeah, we do see the world through TARDIS-tinted glasses. We do. Sorry. No, um, it's nothing to apologise for. It's It's a... <laughs> An indicator that we are quality people. <laughs> exactly. So he also worked on The Expert with Jerry Glaister and the series Codename. And perhaps most significantly before Secret Army, three episodes of Colditz, which was Jerry Glaister's big hit before Secret Army. And he did the second episode and the episode The Traitor featuring Patrick Troughton. Another Doctor Who connection. I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome all... to World Enough and Time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think he did like the last ever episode called Liberation. And crucially, I've talked about Victor's Retellis on another podcast, which should be out before this one, which was um, The Lotus Eaters on an A to Z of UK TV drama. <laughs> and Victor's Retellis' episodes stand out like such a sore thumb in those that it's hilarious. It's just like... He's obviously a frustrated feature film director who just wants to try anything. And I guess it's at a point in BBC history where directors have quite a lot of freedom to take the story where they want. And he absolutely just takes that remit and just goes <laughs> mental, I think. But love him. Little quote from him that he found it was interesting that he worked on so many wartime dramas with Jerry Glaister. It was rather interesting seeing as I survived Hitler's Germany that there I was helping Jerry restage World War II on three different series. So, um, yes, he was 
he kind of got caught up in the Holocaust and as a very young um, child remembers fleeing um, from Nazi Germany. Yeah. So this was lived existence from him. Yeah. Yeah. And so was that because um, his family were Jewish and they had to get out of the country? I don't think I ever established that. I know he was Latvian born. So I guess Latvia would have been a part of... Latvia would have been part of Nazi Germany, I guess. So maybe it was racial. Maybe it was just people fleeing from the Germans. I don't know. But certainly when it comes to series three, he remembers directing scenes that he had in his mind's eye um, because of his experiences. Yeah. And how do you know, like, roughly how old he would have been then? Was it like small child, teenager? Like? Oh, yes. Very small child. Very small okay. child. Yeah. Because he was... Because he was a kind of enfant terrible director in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I think he was quite young, probably late 20s, early 30s. So, yeah, I'm trying to think what that means. Yeah. So I think he was a tiny toddler, actually, in the war. But that's, um, it's again, it just goes to kind of show that it's still in living memory at the point that this show is made. Yeah. It's, it's got people who have fought in it, who have fleed from people in it, who, or if not them, their parents have vivid memories or fought in the war or mm. have those experiences. So Yeah. Yeah. But I think one of the first things we, we said about Secret Army when we talked on an actual call was that you could always tell a Victor's Retellis episode. Yes, yeah. And I think um, when you're starting to learn all of the different directors of Secret Army, it's at first, you know, when you're first watching, you're, you're not watching to tell their directorial, I can't say that word, directorial styles apart. <laughs> you're yeah. just figuring out the plot and enjoying it for what it is. Yeah. And when you start re-watching, you start trying to pick out those differences. Um, I don't think I've managed that for the other directors. I couldn't necessarily look at them and be like, oh, that's definitely a... Paul Anna episode or something yeah. without yeah. knowing it but but with Victor's Rotellus you absolutely can um, yeah. for reasons we'll go into later I imagine yeah absolutely I think it's also just worth mentioning that when I first connected with the cast of Secret Army particularly it was Victor's Rotellus that with the female members of the cast they're just like oh my god you're in touch with Vic oh that's amazing I need his email I need to contact him straight away they were just so utterly thrilled um, particularly Angela and Juliet They'd, he was their favourite director but they kind of had a love-hate relationship with him which is really interesting because he made them do things that were either with their voices or in terms of action in terms of scenes that pushed them and they didn't like it but they also loved him. So there was a kind of push-pull there, which is interesting. We'll probably get into that when we look at some of some of his episodes later on in more depth. Did I read somewhere or hear somewhere that he slapped one of the actresses in the face? Or have I made that up? Oh, that sounds completely likely. Yes, I remember the story, but I don't remember who it was. I feel like, oh, I do know it was Jan Francis in Too Near Home. Yes. To get the reaction he wanted yes. from her. And that really shocked me because there's, on the one hand, there is that, you know, a director pushing a cast member to get a performance and maybe in ways that are uncomfortable or difficult for those actors on set. But then hurting someone is <laughs> a completely different ball game. And that, yeah, that stepped into something different. Yeah. And I was really shocked to hear that. And, and it, a lot of things that I've heard about the experiences of actresses at, at this yeah. have saddened me and shocked me because whatever your job is you should be comfortable empowered yeah. safe 
Um, yeah, one of the stories that I'll never forget that Juliet and Angela told me was that um, when they were on series three, towards the end, when they were really establishing their roles, key, the, the key principal characters, that one of the directors on the show referred to them as the two C's. Oh, okay. Which is just, oh my God. That's awful. I mean, yes, that word. Yes. Yeah. I mean, ha- how? And I think it was because they were threatened by their power, their experience, their knowledge of how to get the emotion across on screen. So I think it was about being threatened by them as women, which is just, yeah, it says so much. Yeah, and I guess just the sexism that would be so embedded in society. Yeah. And overtly so at that time. Yeah. Like now it's obviously still there, but just very, just more covertly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. And and I think one thing that I didn't get a chance to go into on um, the our introductory episode was that's been really interesting to me as well to hear, I guess, like from a, a female perspective or a feminist perspective, how times have changed, how things were. And I, I don't know, I guess I wish I could somehow make, wave a magic wand and get ac- actresses in that time to have a better working experience because it so often sounds shit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was definitely, they were overwhelmed by the male aspect of the series. That's a direct quote from Angela. Yeah. Uh, every day going to work was hard on that basis. Yeah. As well as dealing with everything that all of the actors were going through, but they were, I guess they were acting in an environment where it was like playing it on hard mode. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because they were lower down the pecking order. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the filming locations briefly? I would love to. Because it's quite, it's quite a film-heavy episode. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Where, what was the candide again? <laughs> I don't know. We're not there in this episode. <laughs> no, exactly. Where was it? So for the cafe scenes, the alternative cafe, which is, um, it was actually filmed in Covent Garden when Covent Garden was closed in the 70s. And I did go hunting for it back in the mid-2000s, and found it quite quickly, the cafe with the one it must have been, given the archway and everything. And it was at that point, it was the shops Argentius and Octopus, which probably don't exist anymore. I mean, that's a long time ago, but also the pandemic. But um, it's on the left-hand side at the far back, if you ever want to go and visit the cafe from this episode, um, as you face Covent Garden from the, from the front. So we also have lots of gorgeous Brussels location filming, we visit the Place Saint Catherine, which has got that beautiful church with the the rose window, and that's where the market scene was, um, with lots of people in really good period costume and terrible shoes. I noted, um, but that's where you see Alan meet Lisa at the market. Also, got a lovely place if you're ever in Brussels that you must visit the Place de Petit Sablon, which is around a pond with fish in it, and it's uh, it's a, a foliage sort of like archway area with statues within it and this is where this is where art was imitating life because this was the exact route that bill randall took as he was wandering around brussels when he was an actual evader and they thought let's use this in the series this is the route that walker takes after his after he flees from the um, doctor's surgery and yeah, Bill Randall, who was the evader, who was the technical advisor on Secret Army, because he'd been down the line himself, that was the route he took. So if you go there, you just get a real sense of, oh my God. And it looks exactly the same today with those statues. And yeah, just a gorgeous place to visit. Yeah, what fantastic authenticity. I know, isn't it? 
Shall I just read the section of him from his book about that moment? Yes, please. And um, for people who don't know the title, do tell us the title as well if people want to buy it for themselves. So this is an excerpt from Bill Randall's book about his evasion experience called Blue Skies and Dark Nights, which was published in 2002, and it's published by Independent Books, if you want to try and get a copy of that. I prayed earnestly for the safety of my crew. Almost as an answer from above, a portly, well-dressed man came to sit near me. I noticed that he was wearing the Belgian boutonniere. We sat alongside each other in silence for a minute or so, and then he got up and left. I counted off a minute and followed him outside into the broad daylight, waiting at the top of the entrance steps and watching him cross to the other side of the road. When he got there, he turned and waved his hand in my direction, then walked off slowly to cross a busy main road and enter an ornamental garden shrouded with trees. I followed him into the garden around a large stone pond in which goldfish were swimming, and up a semicircular flight of steps, at the back of which, in ivy-covered alcoves, stood statues of ancient notables. So, yeah. That's incredible. Isn't it? And how nice to hear his actual words about that as well. Exactly, that's what I thought. Yeah. And just before we leave Bill Randall behind... Also, the experiences in the cafe in this episode are also kind of recounted to a degree in um, in that in that book as well. And this is a moment at which him and his fellow evaders were waiting for Dee Dee to arrive. So Dee Dee effectively being Lisa. And they'd been taken there by another guide, a male guide. He seated us at the far end of the room, conveniently close to a fire exit. I noticed that the wall clock was showing 12.45, giving us ample time to eat a leisurely meal. The restaurant was about half filled, and not far from us, two German soldiers were already well into a meal. He goes on to say how uh, one of his fellow evaders, an American called Dal Mounts, went to visit the toilet and went to the ladies rather than the gents because he didn't read it properly, and that caused trouble. A hush had descended on the restaurant as attention was focused on the embarrassing scene. People were intrigued, many were laughing, including some German soldiers who had just arrived. We were the focus of all eyes as I led the crestfallen American back to our table. There was still time to be wasted before our rendezvous with Dee Dee, but I decided it would be safer to do so downstairs and outside. The others went ahead and I paid the bill. But just as I was about to leave, a hand fell on my shoulder and someone behind me whispered in English, You really must try to do better or you will never get back to England. So they did. They got on much better than the people in this episode. They did, yeah. But I mean, it again. It just shows like complete chance of it, doesn't it? Like, sounds like those German soldiers didn't follow up on that. Yeah, didn't really, didn't really care. Yeah, or didn't care, or what have you. And then they could have easily just had some German soldiers who did, or there would be no soldiers there. It's all just luck, yeah, as well as wits. Yes, and I think that's the thing about Secret Army is it's just like there's random fates and random situations and it's i think it does step away from that chocks away oh yes we'll get through it which is what Kolditz feels like you know whereas secret army is like now nah, you might just get killed at any moment and that's just how it is can i interject with another question yes you may i am just curious from a researcher perspective about the filming locations so do you did you get hold of like documents that said where those filming locations are or did you just do a lot of walking around brussels like yeah yeah um, I'm really nostalgic for those days. Basically, um, Marisa and I, that's my um, ex-wife, um, we had some amazing times just literally scrambling around Brussels, just <laughs> looking for anything that might be the right angle. So um, another place we found, I remember this really well, we thought we'd completely gone out of the sort of like the filming zone. And that's the point at which we found that canal by the prison, which is where Walker gets picked up by those those drunk men. So that was at the Boulevard de Newport. And it was just randomly finding stuff. And yeah, all of those things we just found by accident. But um, my favourite memory was finding um, 
was finding a location from Sound of Thunder, which was just below um, Nancy's Steps. They're called Nancy's Steps because of Oliver, and um, it's where Nancy dies. Someone else in Secret Army dies very close by a key character. So yeah, that was perhaps the best filming location we found. But yeah, I've got a real nostalgia for just mooching around and finding stuff. The Secret Army files in the BBC archives are so limited that there's just nothing. So I had to rely on directors or writers' memories um, or cast memories. And even then, it was it was hard, particularly as I didn't really understand what people were saying. For instance, I thought I was looking for an area of London called Suffolk, as in like Norfolk and Suffolk, <laughs> but it was actually Southwark, you know, Southwark Cathedral and all this sort of stuff. Like that. So, you know, so much... Miss, so much lost because I wasn't understanding what people were saying as well. But anyway, can I also get you to share your walking tour anecdote here because it's such a wonderful anecdote? Oh yeah, so um, on the Secret Army website that I no longer update. Apologies. Um, I'm finding it very useful for this podcast. Actually, I haven't looked at it for years, but um, there is a Brussels filming locations guide with numbers and photographs that we took from these trips. Um, so you can walk around at Brussels and do a Secret Army location hunt um, and walk walk in the footsteps of Lifeline. <laughs> and someone got back to me back in 2004 or five, something like that, by email to say that they'd done the walking tour. And I was like, oh my God, someone's actually done it. That's really cute. I didn't think anyone would. And they said, but as they were walking around, someone else was doing the, the same thing. And it was no less than Hazel McBride, <laughs> Madeline from Secret Army. So it was also going back and having a look and using the same guide from the website. How amazing is that? I love that. That's why I got you to share it. I was like, that is an incredible anecdote. I love it. Yeah, I mean, what a lucky fan to be doing that and then to actually see Hazel walk up to you. Cause she, looks, she looks identical, just with short hair. So, you know, she's, she's no different really at all before we started talking i had found your website and did hope to go to brussels one day and do the tour hmm. but i would just now i know the anecdote i'd just be so disappointed now i'd be like right where are the cast members on my walking tour i think we need to get juliet to lead a tour for us <laughs> around brussels yes what with a little tour guide flag I think she'd love it. <laughs> right, final episode plans you me <laughs> juliet <laughs> brussels yeah exactly it's getting let's bigger and bigger with every episode. This yeah, week. let's speak it into existence. <laughs> you are listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. So now that I have asked you lots of questions, thank you for bearing with me and answering them. I would love to hear what you think about this episode because we haven't really talked about it, so I don't know what you think about it. Hmm. Okay, yeah, so... I think it's immediately different to episode one. Episode one is trying to do too much, I think, and just about gets away with it. This episode, I think, partly because of Victor's Retellis, but also because of the script by John Brazen, is really focusing in on the evasion experience and how alien and terrifying that is, rather than on our regulars, which is a curious decision when this is only episode two. Don't you think? Yeah, it does feel... So when I watch uh, longer-running TV shows, I love it when they switch the formula. And so you have, like, your standard, you know, scenes with all the characters. And then you might have one in the season where it's just from one character's point of view or they do it from, like, here's the same events but from 
you know the different characters yeah. and they film the scenes slightly differently and things like that and I, I love it and they're fantastic but it's yeah like you say it's just really strange that they're doing that here it's like someone took a season eight a season eight <laughs> a, a episode eight and and just accidentally dropped it in the number two slot so it's really strange that they're doing that now I agree yeah the only thing that places it earlier in the run is that Kessler at the start says I don't do not know you very well yet, my old Brad. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, it's kind of odd that it, it is so early in the run, I would say. Mm. Um, and I just think it's really strange that it's it's really asking a lot of the audience, I think. We talked about how the first episode can be quite confusing with a lot of introductions to different characters. So you start episode two with that you don't really know them yet and then it's just gone straight into introducing even more characters yeah. without much of an explanation like jack are we going for jack or jacques jacques paul <laughs> um and not much of an introduction he just appears and you're like all right we've yeah. got him <laughs> and then you're still trying to figure out who but then the all the characters you thought were the main characters take a back seat and then it's, I think it's just asking a lot for, you know, if you're a first-time viewer. Yeah, it really is. Um, and that refers back to my earlier comment about Ryan saying, I don't know anyone's name yet. And I'm not, I don't blame you, mate. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy to know. Yeah. And that's not him, you know, not being a fan and, you know, yeah. we're not hating on him for that. It's a, it's, it's <laughs> a reality of when you're watching the second episode for the first time. <laughs> we're hating on him a little. <laughs> I'm not. Ryan, I'm not hating on you. Thank you. <laughs> Natalie, I'm sorry. Two damn scenes <laughs> scurrying in and out of the cycle shop. I didn't understand that scene at all. I know it's a very specific comment, but there's the bit where they all run to the cycle shop and they just stand there and then there's a knock at the door and then we don't see who it is. It's like, what on earth was that about? I thought, so you have that, that other guy in a black coat Ooh. and some facial hair who's also dressed a bit like Kessler and they seem to be looking around the street, but it's not really established who's dispatched him or what he's looking for. Yeah. But I thought he was searching that area. And so right. the members of Lifeline are like, right, they're coming to our street now. So they run in the shop and then run out the back. Yeah, but it wasn't developed enough that we cared or understood what was going on. No, but that's just what I thought was happening. Yeah. Although I did notice, sorry, I'm going to have to say it, a glorious bit of acting from Juliet, where when she gets to where she's standing she looks at her feet and then looks up everyone else is kind of doesn't feel real but just in that scene she's just like yeah she knows she's present it was just i hadn't noticed it before but just watch for her the way she looks down at her feet and then back up it's like yes mm. good work i'll have to check that out we can't talk about this episode and not talk about victor's direction in a bit more detail which i was rather pleased to have found that i called in my book stark european realism andy whew. <laughs> So what what do you feel about it? Let's get into it. What what stuck out to you as yeah? It made me laugh that you um, said someone had referred to him as a, a mad bastard. <laughs> Was that what you just said earlier? Yes. So um, in my head, I call him Victor's off the chain retellers. <laughs> yeah, 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 that. I really admire and value him on the one hand. There's some absolutely incredible shots in this episode. So I really like the one where it starts off with Walker in the basement type area with the rat mm. and there's that imagery of him being like the rats to survive he's, he's a trapped rat you he's see. a trapped rat you see <laughs> Do you see what they did there and then he and then it cuts to him on the street 
and I guess it's a crane shot, but then it pulls right out. And I was yeah. like, this is visually so interesting. And it really shows a lot about Walker as a, char- as a character because you can see his quick thinking. You know, he runs yeah. into some Germans, he goes into the into the toilet and then comes back out again. And I was like, that's really beautiful and really interesting. So I love that. On the other hand, Mr. Off the Chain Metellus. <laughs> I just don't need that many close-ups of people eating in my life. <laughs> yes. It reminded me of that South Korean phenomenon, mukbang, where you can watch people eating across from you on YouTube, eating full meals. It's just it's horrible. I've not heard of that, but that's interesting. Have you not? Yeah. It's so you don't, if you're ever alone, you can watch YouTube and tune into a mukbang channel and watch someone eat opposite you. To that yeah. degree of close-up, or are they a bit further away? Oh, no, they are that close. Oh, it's, okay. It's quite horrible. <laughs> I kind of immediately get to thinking of Jerry Glaster and thinking as a producer, do I let this go? Is this okay? Is this too much? Is this being too arty? Especially if you're inviting someone back. Like, he does a lot of episodes. He does episodes in every season, doesn't he? Yes. So, if you had then watched Sergeant on the Run and then Victor's is coming back again because he's a great director, Mm. you'd just be like, great to have you back, mate. Just tone it down just just a little bit. (laughs) Dial it back. Just dial it back. (laughs) You imagine it and you tell us your ideas and then we'll go with 70% of them. Yeah. But I think he must have had quite a strong influence on the production team, on Jerry, because his episodes are all location heavy, this series. Mm, okay. So, so he goes back to Covent Garden for two near home. Um, that's all filmed there, all those outside scenes where, he sh- where, where I said where he shot Dan. It was all this is back where he hit Jerry. <laughs> and Identity and Doubt with um, on the mudflats. Yes. You know, that was so much location. So I think he was known as the location director. Yeah. And got to do a lot of that because it was his bag and it was because he had filmic, I guess, pretensions. But I would have definitely said, yeah, we need to just dial it back a bit. There were times where it felt a bit like you were stuck in a bad acid trip. Yeah. Like when you're in the cafe and that song is playing and there's like sweaty hands, close-ups of people eating and scenes of the clock and it's just like like what's in my tea <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean it's, it's deliberate disorientation obviously but it's not just the visuals it's the soundscape as well isn't yeah, it yeah. and the whispering and like when you see those clocks on the market store tick tick tick, tick. Like, yeah oh yeah that's what I mean and, and yeah. of course I know it's that um, no, you know, know you do, technique yeah. To, yeah. to convey that message in the show or what have you but, but it's just like yeah. It's laid on too thick. It, it? A, a wee bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and because so much of this is on film and then you suddenly cut to the Condide, I found that so jarring when you go back to the Café Condide, whatever it's called, that we have decided whether it's <laughs> restaurant, cafe, whatever it is. When we go back to the Condide from the other cafe, it's kind of like, oh, wow, we're back in BBC TV Centre now. No yeah, question. Yeah, there was, there was a bit of that, um, which we... I love Secret Army 4, which is it just can't change between interior and exterior locations. It's like, no. here's a man looking out of a window. Here's the shot through the window. And you're like, this is not the same. <laughs> but I do love the fact that it is in the studio because it makes Secret Army cosy. Can you imagine Secret Army as being all on film, like a Thames TV production, with you know, them operating from a cafe like the one we see in Sergeant on the Run? It would be such a different series, and I don't think it would have the same feel at all, and I would really... No. I really would struggle with it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, um, just to add on my previous point, I think the metaphors and things that you use, their effect, their impact is reduced when it's, like, too in your face. Yeah. So just have, like, the fly trap with the flies in the cafe in the background. 
on screen but you don't need a close-up of it with some music <laughs> and then cutting back to someone's close but you know just yeah just trust in it to tell the story yeah. and get the point across mm-hmm. and my favorite my favorite victor's moment is in not according to plan from series two we're a way off that but that moment is just so ridiculous i love it anyway <laughs> Are you talking about the cat? Or yes, I'm talking fact- about the cat. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the cat. Out of nowhere. I thought you were going to talk about the time when Dr. Kelderman's face like moves around <laughs> like he's uh, in Queen doing the... What's that famous Queen song Bohemian called? Rhapsody. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the, my best Victor's moment of all time is actually in the Lotus Eaters where there's, there's these characters on a beach and there's a massive zoom out through this metal grill and, and then and you zoom in to this little snail... That's traversing, <laughs> traversing this metal grill. It's like, oh my god, that is so Victor's. It's brilliant. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, the other thing that occurs to me about Victor's is he must have gone over budget. The setup for his shots. Yeah, like that one I just mentioned about yeah. starting in and then coming out. Like I was like, they've hired a crane, but also that means everything in that shot, all the bicycles, the costumes, and like you said, the marketplace as well. Yeah, and then they're in it so briefly. And I, I guess they were getting shots for other episodes at the same time, I would hope. <laughs> but it's still odd how much setup there must have been for these little these little scenes but the shot that i think must have taken the most time was hanging walker from the stairwell with wires uh, to get that that shot you can see in freeze frame that he's that he's hung up like that but the ambition to make it something real of having going down the stairwell was it kind of just about works but i was thinking more about oh my god that must have taken ages you know the the commitment to that directorial choice mm. anyway i think we need some more thoughts from you on this episode oh sorry i've just been distracted by one of your notes <laughs> what was it lisa nah we don't want on eg <laughs> yeah she doesn't want she doesn't want curtis there at all and i just love how dismissive she is it's like no go away go back to england it's so good it's like and because he's such a mansplainer isn't he and he's like oh this is what oh you, yeah oh. and she's like no i'm not having it I just love it. <laughs> In my notes, I lost my patience and was like, shut up, Curtis, you massive knob. <laughs> yeah. And she, I love when she spells it out. We are not a resistance organisation. We don't want your bombs, you idiot. You don't understand even what we're doing here. Go away. Go away. <laughs> I like it when Albert comes in at the end and he's like, he's been dealt with, with German bullets, and just kind of makes the point that, you know, if someone found the body you might think oh he's been shot by the germans because they're not using british (laughs) scent bullets like come on it's really obvious stuff yeah i have a question for you what is the time scale for this episode how many weeks does it take place over well that is a point i made which is adding to the confusion of all of the characters a point i made in the notes sorry obviously the listener will be like you haven't made that yet (laughs) um a point i made in our show notes is um In addition to all of the confusion about characters and more characters being introduced and it's a big ask of the audience, you then add in a distorted sense of time or no concept of time at all because there's not really any sense of when it is taking place, month and year. But then you're also just like, he's walking again? And then someone says, five weeks have passed. I'm just like, what is happening? (laughs) And you're like, oh my God, I know, five weeks he's been asleep. I'm like, well, 
I don't think Lifeline would be thinking about him anymore. They would have got so many other people out, had so many more adventures. I kind of like to think other episodes happened concurrently to this one. Also. Oh, I like that. That is a headcanon I am happy to accept. Yeah, so I think I think at least Radishes with Butter and Child's Play and Second Chance all take place yes. during, during Sergeant Underwood. Yes. That's my theory. I like that a lot. I'm going to accept that as truth. Good. So he's just still asleep. Walker's still asleep, recovering. Yeah, Lisa's gone down to the Pyrenees. Come back. <laughs> She's back. She's fresh. had a nice hole. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, but it's a throwaway line, isn't it? Yeah. Like, oh my God. Really? I actually, re-watching this actually made me feel a bit better about not quite getting it the first time I watched it. Yeah. I have yeah. some confusion still about the ending. Yeah. So when I was re-watching it last night, you have like Jacques going in an ambulance at the end to get Walker. Yeah. But then it kind of goes back to the Candide and everyone else is waiting in the Candide being like, oh, where's Albert? And then Albert comes in and it's like, shot him. But then he seemed to not be there when Jacques was picking him up in the ambulance. I'm really confused. (laughs) Please tell me what happened. I have nothing for you, AJ. I'm just as confused. Okay. I, I also don't understand why he was hidden in the rubble of a house. If he was shot by a German bullet, that doesn't tie anything up. It just makes him look like he died in a in a yes. bombing raid. I don't know. Maybe they thought, well, they wouldn't do an autopsy. They just think he was dead from a bombing raid, so it doesn't matter about the bullet anyway. Yeah, maybe they were tired and they thought, well, maybe Albert thought, Jacques's already gone back in the ambulance, so I might as well just shoot him and ditch the body now <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then walk home. I don't yeah. know. I don't know what's happened. <laughs> My favourite thing, though, is that the last sentence, the last words in the episode are Albert saying, hey ho. (laughs) He actually says hey ho at the end, which is just like, you know, he really does not struggle with any guilt for having shot this evader. And yeah, there's there's expedient reasons for the death of Walker and it makes sense. It's keeping the lines safe and he knew too much and he was a liability and the morality of Lifeline is brought into wonderful question. But just the fact that he just hey ho. I love it. Got 30 bottles. Yes. Don't think they'll last the war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so good. I mean, we must talk about that, that it's the the first indication that Lifeline are ostensibly the goodies, but are they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, when I read up about the real Lifeline, there was um, someone who had been very badly injured upon bailing from their plane and... I think they had an operation on the leg and the leg had to heal. But then they talked about how that guy felt because he was like, they have to just keep bringing me food for like up to six months while this leg heals yeah. enough for me to go down the line. And so one person is who is injured and being looked after, they're in a safe house the whole time, they have to be fed the whole time when food is very scarce. And again, it just brings all those difficult factors into decision making about what you have to do in shins yeah i mean chin stroking from aj no it's good i mean there's no rabbit in that rabbit soup no (laughs) (laughs) and they're lucky to get the the scrapings from the bones i'll have you know yeah yeah angela richards just does like a kind of busy and stressed monique really well i was like yes i'm really feeling that you're tired that there's no rabbit for the soup got all these men to feed and you're there's a lot going on. And I was like, yes, you're just doing it very well. Yeah. And the scenes when she's finally gets to sit down, you think, God, she's been on her feet all day. You really believe that? Yes. You? Yes. You know, that is um, a slightly gratuitous, I can't say that word, gratuitous. Yeah, good. Say that again. Leg shot. Oh, yes, it is a bit, isn't it? 
But I don't, I, I, I'm happy to let that one slide because it is a very nice, like, move of the camera up into the scene. Yeah. And it does convey her aching feet. Yeah. <laughs> but I will flag it as a gratuitous like shot. <laughs> because you think about it, men, well, men wouldn't get filmed in the same way. Absolutely not. You don't have a leg shot going up Albert's legs. Yeah. I mean, I know I don't even need to think, is there a gratuitous leg shot of a man in Tsukurami? Because we know there absolutely won't be. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But now I've mentioned that scene, that is one of my favourite things about that episode. Bernard Hepton and Angela Richards do such a great job at conveying that intimacy of a couple. They are just really, really good at, you know, there's a phone call and they have their arm draped around each other or they're remembering when they first met. And I just, yes, yeah, yeah. very nice minute long scene. Love it. Even if it feels completely out of place yeah. for the rest of the episode. <laughs> Although this is when my, I, th I think you'll find, fan voice comes in and it's just like, they didn't ever meet in the Condé to begin with, in the novel. In the prequel. They met in, they, they spent time at a completely other bar where they first met and where she was working for him, so. Mm. When we get into the characters and our episodes focusing on characters, um, I really, I'm really excited to dive into that because I think we've got a whole hour just on their relationship yeah. <laughs> alone, haven't they? Because there's that whole question of, you know, if there wasn't a war, would they have even become a couple in the first yeah. place? They might have just had... A nighttime encounter and left it to <laughs> I love how you called it a nighttime encounter. <laughs> it's like how your your gran might have called it or something. <laughs> had a nighttime encounter. <laughs> I love the amount of affection that Albert gives Monique in this episode. Um, I hadn't noticed it before, the hand on the shoulder, the sort of, yeah, there's a definite closeness that I had forgotten that. Yeah. Yeah, and and such a contrast to their later yeah. scenes yeah, in the show. Absolutely. Yeah, and again, when we get into the conversation of their relationship, and there's times, isn't there, where Alba says things that imply he's not fallen in love with Monique, but I don't know. Like here, I really feel like they love each other. Yeah. I also enjoyed that continuity and characterization of Albert being like, "Come on, Alan, pay for the drink." Oh yes. Yeah, he's a, he's a bit of a chancer, isn't he? He's kind of like, you'll get any free drink he can. Because <laughs> isn't he after some food in episode one or something? I feel like there was something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, one thing that is so unimportant, but I'm going to mention it, because if we can't go this deep in this podcast, then, you know, when can I? And that is the character name of one of the airmen. I think it's the one who is actually called Strabel, who is the plant, the Luftwaffe Polizei plant. He's given the name Donald Pickering, which is the name of an actor who would have been well known by the by people at the BBC and possibly by Victors. He was... Um, he was in Doctor Who twice, three times. So I just think which that was episodes, an Andy? Don't leave us hanging. <laughs> he plays I, he plays Eisen in Keys of Marinus. He plays Blade in the Faceless Ones, and he plays Bayus in Time and the Rani. There hey. you go, didn't it? <laughs> well done. Although I want listeners to know that I did tell Andy something about Doctor Who that he didn't know this week. It's not true. It's not true. It's a lie. It was my life achievement. Lie. I can rest in peace now. Thank you. Goodbye. Do you want me to tell you about Martin Burroughs' most important role in any TV yes. film? Martin Burroughs being the actor who Oh, okay. Sergeant yes, Walker. please tell me about him. I know nothing about him. He is the lead in a, a film that I can only imagine is glorious called Sex with the Stars. I wondered why <laughs> that was on the show notes and I was really confused about how it was going to fit in. This makes sense now. <laughs> Have you not seen it then, Andy? 
And no, and I don't think I'll be going to find it anytime soon, having seen the film poster. But it's. Do you think there's nighttime encounters in that film? <laughs> yeah, I think there's twelve. I know there are twelve nighttime encounters in that film, because in this film, he, Martin Burroughs, Sergeant Walker, is tasked to sleep with a woman with. Well, one of each of the stars. Oh no! <laughs> what a terrible premise is it, for a film. Is it an adult film? Yes, is it an adult film? I love how you asked that after that premise. <laughs> like, like, is it no, a porn film? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it still looked quite soft porn though to me. Okay. But I suppose this was eighty-one. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Shook. I am shook. That's that's my Martin Burroughs fact for you. You're listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. So what's your favourite favorite parts of the episode? I've covered a few of them already in terms of performances or little nice scenes and yeah. the parts of Victor's uh, work that I do enjoy. Yeah, and you, you mentioned as well, like, the shot of the cafe and you the camera is from behind the airmen, so you see the soldiers facing the windows yeah. looking in. Yes. I just thought that was so effective and it really conveyed that feeling of tra- being trapped animals or zoo-like yeah. kind of atmosphere. Yeah. So I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Great sinister shot of Kessler to start off the show. Yeah, although it's a little odd, isn't it, when they're in that HQ situation and Brant's just stood on the stairs with that woman and Kessler just wanders past. It's like, this is the only set we have. We have to do it here. <laughs> Don't question it. It's fine. We're going through this report mid-stairwell. I mean, again, they make it weirder than they need to by just filming it entirely in face close-up. Particularly her long f- reaction. To, um... <laughs> but I did like it how it's just like, da-da-da-da, Kessler. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I also really enjoyed Curtis comes in the bicycle shop and talks to Albert like, oh yes, hello man, you wanted me here? And then Albert's just like, actually. And then the camera swings round to the woman in charge. Yeah, actually, yeah, sod off with your assumptions. This is Lifeline run by Lisa, codename Effect. And yeah. uh, I liked how, as a leader of a, res- not a resistance organisation, my apologies, as a leader <laughs> of a escape line. She... We don't want your bombs, AJ. <laughs> she decides, oh, I'm going to meet someone. I'm going to stand in the shadowy corner and uh, I'll just let my right hand man stand by the door. Like, management tips. <laughs> yes. Good, isn't it? Yeah. My favourite element of this episode has got to be Kessler. Um, I think he has such a zeal here. You realise he's a true Nazi at this point. And it's the one scene that I think is perhaps my, my, my line of the week is when he goes to visit Jacques at the, <laughs> the bicycle shop. I just wanted to see the face of the man who won the 50 kilometre race at Wuppertal. And it's just the way he delivers that. You just it makes you realise that he's Aryan, obsessed through and through. You know the, the healthy European the obsession with race and just how sickening that is. And, mm. um, and that yes. he's so knowledgeable to know who's where he is, where he's working. Yes, and that he can swoop in at any moment. And there's something about the SS when they're in civvies when they're in there he's just in a long grey coat but he was way more sinister than when he's in all his leathers you know it's something about the way it it makes it clear it's partly about Clifford Rose's performance but it's also about how the Gestapo carried themselves in those moments and inspired such fear yes I also like towards the end the tension that came from Brandt provoking him even if it was unintentional and that right you've kind of fired up Kessler now and now he's 
going to be even worse than he was already because of your yes. actions in this episode and you're just like oh yeah that's going to play out going forwards yeah and i also like the fact that you just think brand is nice and friendly because you know he, he tries to prevent kessler from beating this man to death on the, even more even more dead at the bottom of the stairwell and he demands that he goes to a hospital but at the same time you know five weeks later albeit he has has placed him with a, a member of the of his own unit, the Luftwaffe Polizei, and it's really cunning and knows exactly what he's doing. Whereas Kessler's just more direct and brutal in this in at this point, whereas Brandt actually has more experience of how to deal with his evasion issue, even though he has had no success. <laughs> yes. I haven't actually talked about one of my main points yet, which I, oh, wow. was such a main point to me that I put it in capital letters in the show notes. <gasps> but for me, this was really an episode of a theme of the ordinary versus the extraordinary. And it really runs throughout the episode. So you have so many examples of this. You have, you know, a soldier on the run coming through soldier, uh, soldiers playing, children playing on the street. You have a flower in the bomb site. Um, at the end, you have the washing on the line and the soldier coming through it. And I really loved picking out all of those examples. Yeah. You have, yeah, the soldiers just drinking and not realising they've got a downed airman in their midst. You have Kessler stirring tea like a gentleman and gently oh, putting yeah. his spoon on the side of the cup and saucer and then snatching the tags off the captured airman. And, yeah, um, yeah it was just contrast, compare and contrast. Absolutely. That. And... Knowing that it's victors, it would have all been very deliberate. Often when I was reviewing episodes of Secret Army for the book, I would think, did they know that that theme was strong and actually happening in this episode? And I didn't always believe that either the writer or the director would have meant it. But I think with Victor's, he would have been very aware of that extraordinary in the ordinary and those juxtapositions. Because, oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, that's slightly too obviously in times because yes. you've got, you know, panicked airmen in a cafe and then people just having having the food and dipping the bread and eating it. Yeah. We I, get it! Yes. <laughs> I remember a question that he asked me on a video call, Victor's, and he said, um, Andy, how do you train a fly? <laughs> I remember saying, thinking, I don't know if this is something I'm meant to answer. I'm just going to say, I think I just said quite. <laughs> I um I didn't ask you that earlier, actually. But yeah, so you've spoken to him and met him virtually. Yes. Yes. Tell me more about that. Just um, he was really excited to talk about Secret Army because he felt that people hadn't ever given it enough credit or talked about it. It was a really important series to him because obviously he worked on all three series. And he ended up producing a, an 18-minute film for the Secret Army 3 box set. And there was a massive trouble of getting the BBC to accept it because it wasn't directed by the people who created the dvd set it was just sent to us as a video file and it had weird video editing style in it and it had weird music and was it all cleared and it looked for a long time that they weren't going to be able to include it and it was really sad because he talked so in such detail about the series and it was a really lovely retrospective but um in the end someone at the BBC said oh god we can't be bothered to get into it let's just put it on there which is not a BBC sort of decision they usually make. It's usually like, if there's any question, we will not put anything in. But they made the decision to include it. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. Well done, BBC. <laughs> Finally, Jesus. But he, he was lovely. He really was and really passionate and really, really interested that people would, were remembering and excited about that. Mm. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm, I'm just intrigued that he always seems to have um, filmed all his, all his episodes in Speedos. <laughs> Which is 
not all of them, but certainly I've seen so many location photos um, of him filming the Lotus Eaters and the, and the mud flats, and he's there in these tiny speedos. And I'm just thinking that's quite a choice as the director. And um, nothing else. No, literally. And I just like why why was he not fired? <laughs> not just for that, but you know, in terms of slapping a, an actress yeah. as well. well. Like I don't yeah. understand. And then you bring into the element that he's a gay man, openly gay director. Yeah. And that's part of it. I think it's just, oh, this is me and I've got a good body. I'm just going to be who I am. But And I think that was perhaps part of his fascination with the, the women characters. Like me, he would come to Secret Army with the like, oh, let's lift the women up. They're amazing sort of thing. Although there's no sign of that in this episode, is there? But then I guess he, no. has, to, he, has, he has to work with the script. But mm-hmm, yeah. But I'm curious about that as well. Like, how how does that link together in terms of someone's sexual orientation and then an appreciation for female characters and wanting to lift them up? Like, tell me the connection there. I don't know. Can you explain a bit more about it? We, I, I, it doesn't have to stay in the podcast. I can cut it. But I'm just curious as to... No, yeah. I, I wish... Uh... I don't have that lived experience, so I'm, I don't necessarily get the intrinsic... In- connection that you're implying and i really don't either okay but it's definitely true of my sexual orientation that i'm fascinated by dramas where there's strong women um but not just strong because i think this is a problem when we talk about strong women because it's more about performances um characterizations that are are complete yes and people have agency rather than they are strong blah, blah, blah. You yeah know, it's just like they're really well drawn and, and acted and there's something about the condition of women and how you have having to deal with everything and against all the odds and then in wartime even more so that I just find so appealing as a gay man and I don't really understand why that is but it's why I love the series that I love it's why I love Secret Army it's why I love Tenko it's why I love well little less love for survivors with its initial two female characters who are so strong and central and it's surprising that you know that the they were female, the main the main characters. And yeah, just something... What is it about that that I find so appealing? Is it just because I end up having to get to know my mum really well when she went through all the struggles with my dad? Is it because I had two sisters and I understood them? What is it? We need to know. We'll figure it out <laughs> before we get to the end. Okay. But yeah, I'm just... I was just curious. Um, yeah. On like a friendship level, I guess, because you always imply that that, that connection is, is there like automatically... Yeah. Because of your sexual orientation. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. We'll see, it will be interesting to see if Ryan makes that connection as well. Mm. Because I know he loves a lot of series with strong women as well, so there's definitely something there. Yeah. You yeah. could just be two men with great taste in TV shows. It could be that. Let's just say it's that. No, let's not. I want, I want to fight for the game. Yeah, well, I'm not, say, I'm not trying to dismiss it. No, I'm, I know I'm you're just not. trying to understand it, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and me. Um, do we want to discuss? Can I just say, yes. can I just say one thing that I think it might be also is the fact that um, men aren't allowed to be sensitive and to yes. think, or at least they weren't. And it's something about the emotional depth of the female characters that they get to express themselves and you get to see their inner soul in a raw way that gay men have not had the opportunity to. So it's connecting with that rawness that I think might be part of it that through these characters they get a chance to express themselves and feel and be sensitive and cry and understand through a woman because they don't have male characters on screen that allow them to do that. Oh, that could be it. I think you've got it. There you go. (laughs) Anyway, just came to me. And that's why I always like to ask those questions. Yeah. Because um, 
sometimes just sounding it out you can get the answers you didn't know you had yeah because i have a desperation to see women characters on screen particularly when it's an older series and you think well they're probably yeah. the coverage isn't going to be great i really want to find out about their inner workings and how they react to things because it would probably yeah, be more in yeah. keeping with my reaction to things because i'm not saying i'm you know feminine or got a female brain but certainly there's the sensitivity that is attributed to women or it's allowed to appear on screen for women yeah Mm-hmm. Yes. Sorry, you had a question you were about to ask. No, no. Um, so I, I took us on a really long sideways conversation when we're actually recording the podcast, <laughs> but it's very interesting and I wouldn't want to do the podcast without our own personal conversations yeah. sneaking Absolutely. in. Um, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to share um, about Jacques and Renard? Oh, you've yeah. got them on your show notes. I just thought, seeing as we wouldn't have individual episodes about Jacques and Renard. <laughs> what, <laughs> Andy? I am outraged. I was looking forward to the Jacques episode. Everyone's waiting. The Jacques Ball episode will be in April 2025. <laughs> I'm going to um, test your knowledge here. Do you, do you know how many episodes he was in? I'm going to say about five or six. Oh, four. Only four. I'm pretty sure it was only four. That's really interesting because in terms of the writer's Bible, he comes between, I think it's like Lisa and Curtis or something. He's like, he's really high up the list of characters. And he has a, can I read the description of Jacques Aborl to you? Despite being a minor character, originally in the script editor's notes, he comes between Natalie and Curtis. You'd expect, you know, he's, he's quite important. Age 36 to 40, he runs a small bicycle shop. Not far from the Gare de Midi. Good to know. Able, therefore, to move about, deal in tyres. I am just out dealing in tyres. Um, <laughs> keeping a workshop, etc. Um, once, he was a champion European cyclist. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why that just really tickled me. He was once a champion European cyclist from 1937 to 1939. They were his years. They were the Jacques Ball years, if you like. He got a hip injury. I like that we know it was a hip injury. And that stopped him cycling. <laughs> None of this matters in the show. It's so important. Get this knowledge down. If you don't understand, if you don't understand Jack Ball, you don't understand Secret Army. Um, Do you think then from I'm this... I'm not finished. Can... <laughs> <laughs> he has a tendency to leftist ideas, but he is loyal to a vet. He is unmarried. But as we know from this episode, he has a partner who is an orderly at the hospital. So, there you go. I Listeners can't see this, but I am actually crying with laughter at this point. This is crying because you finally have all the answers to all your questions about Jacques Ball. Is it a cry of relief? It's just so detailed and I don't care. <laughs> wow. Well, you are on your own there, AJ. There's listeners who are just, they're just gripping the furniture hearing all these Jacques Ball facts. Are we to take from this that he was supposed to be a bigger character throughout the series and then perhaps the actor became unavailable or they decided not to include him so much because there was a lot of characters and they wanted to focus on some of the primary ones? Like, why why has yeah. he got such a in such a deep, such a depth to him? Yeah, I think it's like a lot of the series at the time um, in the 70s, they had the freedom, they obviously had the, the money that they could cast a wider bunch of characters at the start or through a series and then decide well actually these ones work this actor's really good and then move them forward it happens a lot on survivors as well there's a massive pool of characters to deal with and some people just then just get killed off or forgotten some people just appear on screen for a few minutes and then you never see them again but they're a regular which is really weird you've got this pool that a writer can draw from get inspiration from 
And yeah, there's just not anything distinctive enough about Shaq other than he's into bikes to, to sort of like make him interesting, is there? Yeah. And you are going to need you are going to need those characters because, you know, you've got this escape yeah. escape line network. So you are gonna need people for the plot, aren't you, for for your writing yeah. devices to be like, Oh, and he's good and then we know this because of the girlfriend in the hospital. I'm really intrigued about Claude. Who the hell's Claude? They kept mentioning Claude all throughout the episodes. Isn't he the guy that takes them to the restaurant? I think, and it briefs them. Oh, you have solved a mystery for me, Andy, and for that I am grateful. That would make sense. <laughs> Jacques was one of the two characters, the other being Natalie, where the plan was that they would have leftist sympathies and try to take over the line in series two. So there was even an idea that Jacques Ball would be key in series two, but they never really went there. So, question. What is Rennert's first name? Bob. <laughs> Bob Rennert's. He should be called Bob. I think he's more of an Anthony, you know? I can see Anthony Rennick. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me an answer, but you just... No, I've got, I've got, no I have got a name. Oh, OK. Name. <laughs> it's called Viet. Viet. V-E-I-T. Yeah. Viet Leonard. Do you want to find out more about him from the script editor's notes? You care, don't you? Yes. Age tell me more. 30. Is it as detailed as Jacques? Yeah, so detailed. Age 34? I don't think so. No, he looks about... 20. 21. Yeah. He's he's a babe in arms. <laughs> Rank gefreiter. Subdued, rat-like, wholly subservient, timorous assistant. Treated badly by Kessler because he accepts the treatment. Not a Uriah heap, just a faceless nothing. Aww. I thought that was a bit of a... Necessarily <laughs> hard. <laughs> faceless nothing. Bob, you're not a faceless nothing no. to me. And um, as we wrap up our thoughts on this episode is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't touched upon i don't think so i think we've gone into quite a lot of detail for something that is i think the only thing i want to say is that it doesn't do much better than lisa codename effect at actually giving you the feel the core of secret army it gives you a bit more information but when we do go deep in the next episode in radishes with butter where we get to know lisa and curtis a bit more it's still not the characters i want to know <laughs> And neither is child's play. So as I always say, Secret Army starts with second chance. And that's just where I want to be. I, I don't want to be in this lightly sketched character world of the first few episodes of Secret Army. Shall we see if Ryan wants to be in that world of lightly sketched characters? So we just watched Sergeant on the Run. What did you make of that, Ryan? It's weird because there's like so many like really heavily shot metaphors yeah but then there's really important details that there's just not enough time spent on them like the massive time jumps throughout the episode yeah huge so that's really weird but they've spent like five minutes playing up that their flies caught on fly trap paper or something like that you yeah know? it's like yeah we get it we can see yeah yeah, it's like the shot with all the clocks. It's like, yeah, yeah we can tell that this is to represent his anxiety and yeah. that sort of yeah. stuff. But it's like, right, we get it. <laughs> Laid on quite thick, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So what did you want more time for? What did you want explained? I think it's just, if you don't pay much attention, you'd think it's all playing out in real time almost yeah. because everyone's so concerned about locating Walker. and, But it's like... Yeah, but other things would be going on at the same time because it's been five weeks yeah. or another week or another... And th there's one shot where if it wasn't for the walking sticks changing, you'd think it was the same 
doctor's appointment in the office. Right, yeah. And it's like, it's just a simple detail like that, that if you missed it, you wouldn't know it was a different session. Yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts? Anything else about any of the other regulars? I'm still not sure who's a regular yet. (laughs) (laughs) Any other thoughts? Or are you done? I think I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Are you happy to watch another one? Not now, but on another day. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Again, he's he's sounding a bit tired and confused there. We we watched it even later. This one, the last one. One time we might actually watch the episode during a a decent amount of time. Yeah, not after a busy week. Yes. Yeah, I mean, well, he's very in tune with us, isn't he? He's just mentioned... I've not heard that before, and he's just um, mentioned exactly what we've just talked about this episode. So, well done, Ryan. Yeah, very good. (laughs) It's like we coached him to give the right answers. Indeed. And I think, in fact, I think he inspired me to say some things this episode that I hadn't thought of. So, credit where it's Mm. due. Yes. Well, that's. it's really interesting to have his thoughts, because once you've watched it and seen it to the end, you're never going to remember your initial reactions exactly. to it in the same way exactly. so it's it's really good to to hear um and i just hope he is less tired and less confused as time goes on yeah, i'm sure he will be yeah i can't wait to hear his reactions for later episodes same i know really get really excited because then um, what he said about tenko when we first watched it was um you've broken drama for me and i'm like well what do you mean and he's like well it's so good that nothing else compares so I think that's a good indication that, you know, he will really get into this once once we get past some of these early episodes, yeah. Yeah. Now that's what Ryan thought, but let's see what our good friends on Twitter have to say about it. So Dave K, David underscore Kitchen underscore. After a bleak opening episode, this one doubles down even further. Even now the ending feels shocking, but in 1977 it must have been even more unusual for TV. Although I wonder how it resonated differently with those who lived through the war watching at home. Mm. Mm, good thoughts. Yes. The shock ending. But also that, yeah, it's, it's close. It was close to home at the time. People would have lived through the war, so it would have had even more resonance. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is from Dom J. Brown. Thank you for um, tweeting us with what you thought about this episode. Dominic says, This was the episode that really pulled me. It showed us the real risks they took and the brutal reality of the decisions Lifeline needed to make. I thought the undercover German officer was a great twist and the ending was quite shocking. Top episode, thumbs up emoji. Gosh, he liked it a lot, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He's going to hate this episode of the, of the podcast, isn't <laughs> no, he? It's not that we disliked it, it's just we had issues with elements of it. I yeah. Think. And we will try, we will endeavour to put out um, requests for reviews earlier than we did this time. <laughs> yes, but we thank you because we gave you very little notice but you still rose to the occasion. So well done everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. What next? Well, I think that's it from us this time. As this episode draws to a close, you will hear some more sound bites from other fans of the show talking about what they love about it and their memories of watching it. If you would like to get involved in my mini oral history project, you can get in touch on Twitter at Secret Army Pod or you can email secretarmypod at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We recognise that Secret Army has been very much a community experience, particularly through the talking picture showings and the tweet-alongs. So please get involved, share your thoughts, email us about things we miss or that we haven't said about or that you you disagree with us about. We want to hear about that. All opinions, very welcome. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
and follow us on social media. Yeah. If you don't do those things, Natalie will come and deliver a hard Paddington stare like the ones she gives Albert in series three. And no one wants to be on the receiving end of those. No one. So until the next time we go down the line, when we take a look at episode three, Radishes with Butter, I have been Andy. And I have been AJ. Bye. Bye. So my name is Joanne Lee. I watched it when it first came out and I was living in Brussels at the time. And this is why I became so connected to it. So I was in high school. I would have been 13, 14 years of age when it was broadcast. It was obviously a BBC show, but it was in association with a Belgian television company called BRT. And in those days, you didn't have loads of different channels the way you do today so back in Belgium then you had the French speaking channel you had the Belgian uh, Flemish speaking channel which was BRT and you had the Dutch channel and a German channel and a Luxembourg channel that was about it so five different channels BRT the Flemish speaking channel which is the one which was involved in Secret Army used to show a lot of British dramas subtitled into Flemish so that was my introduction now I I got into Secret Army in the second series it was a big thing at school everyone at school was watching it I went to a British school in Brussels and it was cult following and in those days you didn't have box sets you know you had to wait it was on once a week I think other people were watching it before me but kind of word of mouth went round and you know we started watching it and obviously some of it was filmed on location so you recognized places that you know, particularly the uh, the Candide, which is a restaurant in the Grand Place, which at the time I think was called La Courant. If you live in a city and you, you recognise it and you can relate to the experience of the Belgian people during the Second World War, we had at school once, we had a lady called Madame Gentil Raven, who was part of the Belgian resistance. She came to school and gave a, gave a speech. And of course, don't forget, this is the late 70s when it actually wasn't that long after the end of the war, really. So, yeah, it just became this cult thing that we all watched. And, you know, you, you, when one episode ended, it was like, oh, I can't wait, can't believe I've got to wait for another week to watch the next episode. What, so watching this TV show and then having someone come and, you know, talk about it, it was, uh, it made it feel very real. Thank you for listening to Down the Line. Andy and AJ will be back with another episode in two weeks' time.